this is a particular series that um, kind of builds on previous weeks. And so there will be some um, contexts that I'm assuming we're sharing that we've kind of walked through that and, and kind of have a, uh, a good grip on it in one way or another. So again, if you missed two weeks ago, uh, jump online and listen there if you would. And uh, also just going forward, I guess in the future, I would say if um, it seems like anytime we have really bad weather, it's a Wednesday night around here. People always say, like, hey, Brian, it's Wednesday. It's snowing out. Um, if it's ever bad, jump on our Facebook page, jump online. We always try to post it as early as we can. So if you don't see anything, we're still, still meeting. But this is winter, right? So we kind of have to, have to deal with it. Um, last thing I would say is during this series, I think, is going to generate a lot of questions. So as you have them, I would love to get them. Um, and either on a weekly basis try to answer them up here, or maybe kind of toward the end of the series, I'll take a bunch of the questions and try to go through them and, and give some responses that would be helpful. So I would love it if you would submit any questions you have. Um, you can do that on a piece of paper. You can email me, however you might want to do that. So this is a series, The Unseen Realm, looking at what the Bible really teaches about the supernatural world. Um, and week one, we laid some groundwork of saying God has what's called a divine counsel. He has spiritual beings who are his imagers in the unseen realm, just like we're his imagers here on the terrestrial realm. And it, it, this is helpful to know because what we see, number one, we see that God is really interested in participation. Um, last week, we looked at some, some different accounts in the Old Testament. Um, for instance, one of the best, one of my favorites is this, this, this prophet Micaiah. That, remember, he, he's charged by the evil king. He has like, tell me, tell me what you see. Like, is God for us? And he said, I'll tell you what I see. I see a divine council. And I see uh, one spirit coming forward and saying one thing and one another. But basically, God has decided it's time for Ahab to die. And it's not that God can't figure out how to kill him. <laughs> But he says, I, I want my divine counsel, the sons of God, as they're called. And he gets ideas. And then we're told, finally, one of them steps forward and says, well, I'll be a lying spirit in his mouth, in his, in his prophet's mouth. And he said, okay, how are you going to do it? And he explains, and he goes, that'll work. Go get it done. And it's helpful because what that means is that's a, it's a template for God, how God works with us. We are his imagers. He's not simply giving marching orders. There's an obedience element to following him, isn't there? But he's saying, I want participation as we work out my ends. These are the ends I want. How we get there, I'm actually inviting you to be a part of that, of that process. And so we, we saw this divine counsel. And again, that was important to have established and understand that these names for these supernatural beings, like sons of God, like uh, Moloch, or what we translate messenger or, or angel, or a seraph, uh, or a cherub, a cherubim, a seraphim, these, aren't, these are words that uh, tell you job description. Some of them are like throne guardian descriptions in the ancient world, but it, it tells you what a being does, not what a being is. And, and so we looked at this, even, even the word Elohim, that we translate God, that tells you where a thing lives. It just means it's a supernatural disembodied being. So Yahweh God is an Elohim because he lives in the unseen realm. There are these other beings who are not God, but they're also called Elohim. 
because they live in the unseen world. A disembodied human dead. If you have a relative who's passed away, they're an Elohim in the Hebrew mind. They're living in the unseen realm. And of course, one of the challenges we talked about last week is when we translate Elohim into English, we use the word G-O-D. But in English, we don't use the word G-O-D to refer to any disembodied. We, we just do it for Yahweh God. But that's just not how they did. So we said there's kind of some language challenges as we do this, and we're trying to wrap our minds around that. So that was week one and where we went. And then we ultimately looked at the, lastly looked at the idea that how is it that Jesus is a unique son of God? If, if, if Yahweh is many, many sons of God, what, does that make Jesus just one of many? And we saw no. He is actually the physical embodiment of Yahweh. He is the Lord of the council. So he is unique. He is not just like all the other Elohim. Tonight, what we're going to do, we're going to start, and for the next probably two to three weeks, we'll see how far we get each, each week in this study, we're going to look at three human-slash-divine rebellions that took place in the beginning of the story quite early on. And um, most of us, if, if we're asked the question, well, why is the world so messed up and so broken, most Christians say, oh, that's Genesis 3. That's the fall, right? That's the rebellion in the garden of our first parents. And we pointed out last week that if you were to ask an ancient Israelite, why is the world so messed up? That's only one of three answers they would give you. They'd say, oh, there's really three big things that mess things up that, that, that we're still paying for, so to speak. One's the garden. It's the fall. And what that introduced was to human death and separation from God. But then there was Genesis 6. There were these sons of God who transgressed, did something, and again, we'll talk about that, and we're told that that, that sped up human depravity. It, it sort of proliferated human corruption and human evil. We get that tagline every, at that moment, every intent of the human heart God saw, he said, super messed up, <laughs> like so broken. So something happened there that we'll get to in a week or so. That, that was a big piece of the problem as well. And there was not just a human rebellion, there was a divine rebellion there. And then thirdly, Genesis 11. What, what we think of as the Tower of Babel, there's a human and divine rebellion that took place that fractured things greatly. And tonight we're going we're gonna to go backwards. <laughs> I'm going to start with Genesis 11, then get to Genesis 6 in a week or two, and then to Genesis 3, Okay. I hope you'll see the reason as we go why I'm doing that, because I would submit to you what we're going to look at tonight, Genesis 11. Um, how many of you have, have done missions before? I know a number of, yeah, okay, a number of you. This text explains missions, meaning it gives the theological groundwork for it. Uh, spiritual warfare, some of you are it. You, you know, you hear that and you're like, ooh, that's kind of cool or that's weird or whatever. This text explains, gives theological groundwork for spiritual warfare, for what Paul's ideas are. This text explains Paul's entire ministry. The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You won't know what drives him, how he's thinking, what he thinks his job is, without understanding this particular human and divine rebellion. So this, I also mentioned week one, our goal is that the series would help us develop what's, what we can call a meta-narrative for the world, for everything. A meta-narrative is one big narrative that explains all the little 
narratives. So that's the goal, is that you would walk away with a, a framework, a matrix, with which to, when you read something in the Bible, you're like, why is that there? Is that just thrown in? Like, you know, word count wasn't quite enough? And, you know, they need, no, it's all purposeful. Dots are connected. And hopefully this will help us connect some of those dots. So let me, um, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you, you can open to uh, Genesis chapter 9. We're going to be going through a lot of text, a lot of scripture. It'll be up on the screen as well. Um, I want to give you the, before we get into Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, I want to give you a little bit of context for what is going on here. First rebellion, God says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kickstart my kingdom here. And he starts in this one tiny place of the earth, and, and it's perfect. The rest of the world isn't. But he says, I want you guys to do something with me. And, of course, we know how it goes. Uh, and, and, and there's language that's used. This is important. He says, image of God, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Make all the rest of the earth like this spot. Got it? Three statements. Um, those are the things I want you to do. Again, it messes up, and so um, we, we then get this um, second rebellion. Things are really broken and messed up. God sends a flood, starts over, right? One family. And what's really helpful is, is this up on there yet? Let me try to, because I want you to see these. I'm going to try unplugging it and plugging it back in. I want you to see the language here because it can be really helpful. There we go. Is that large enough for you to see? not, you can move forward and sit on the floor right up here. Um, after the flood, he's got the family again. Oh, it's doing it again. And he, he repeats the exact same language. Look what it says here. To know and his sons, be fruitful, multiply. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like, what does that make you think of? The first time that he tried kickstarting things. This is going to be finicky. I got to Try not to move it. Um, spread, right? Fill everywhere. Go everywhere. And then he even... Oh, my goodness. I'm going to try a totally different... Plug in here. And then he even says a little further down, um, if anyone sheds the blood of man, his blood must, must be shed. And he says, why is that? Because the, he's the image of God. He's repeated all three things. Image bearer of God. Uh, be fruitful, multiply. Spread the earth, okay? Do we understand the command yet? It's been given twice. It didn't work the first time. It didn't work. <laughs> it, 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 we'll see if it works the second time. That's the context to where when we get to the Tower of Babel, we read these words. Do we have another adapter or something that I can uh, get that up on the, on the screen in some way? So Genesis chapter 11, the the Tower of Babel, we read this. If, if you have your Bibles, you can open them or turn them on. Hopefully, we'll get this up there in a second. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and same words, and as people migrated east, now what were they told to do? Spread, right? Um, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they stopped. They settled there, okay? So right there, you're going, oh, wait a minute. They're supposed to, like, spread everywhere. Thanks so much, Caleb. Um, it's, and, then they said, um, and then they said to each other, come, let's, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So this is new technology of building. Um, and they had brick for stone. 
it up there, yeah. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Okay, got there. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. With its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. This is an interesting language here. If you remember a couple chapters later when God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to make a great name out of you. This is them pursuing it. Everything on their own is, is what you're supposed to think of. Uh, let us build a city, a tower, name for ourselves, lest we, what? Obey God. <laughs> lest we be dispersed, lest we do this thing of what God's calling us to in this kingdom. This is an intentional way of saying we're not going to do the commands. The ones that were given in Genesis 3, the ones that were just given in Genesis uh, 6, Nope, no, no, thank you. I'm going to do it my own way. And then it says, the Lord goes down and he sees what they're doing. And then he announces, let us, who's he speaking to? The divine council, right? Let us go down there and confuse their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. I've got to do something to force you to do what I said. (laughs) I want the whole earth to become my kingdom and you're not willing to do it. So the Lord dispersed them on the face of the earth, um, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because Yahweh confused the language of the earth. And from there, again, he's getting done what he wants. He dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, oftentimes, I remember as a kid hearing this story, and I was like, does God not like building projects? Like, is, is, this, is, this, is this proof that churches shouldn't, you know, have like capital campaigns for building products? You know, God doesn't like buildings. No, there, there's something much more going on. Let me show you an image here. Um, scholars completely agree across the board that what is in mind here is a ziggurat. This is an image of a ziggurat. Uh, we have these all over. In fact, if you go to about any country, at, at one point we'll... Um, during this series, we're going to look at the whole concept of, um, think about it. you go to Egypt and what do you see that looks kind of like this? Pyramid, all right? Um, you, you go to other places in uh, South America and you, you ever see something that kind of looks like this? You go to Asia, you will see things that look like this. This is a common practice across cultures. A ziggurat, this is a Mesopotamian one, a ziggurat was part of a temple complex. And the purpose of it was this. You, and again, we'll talk a little bit about the whole concept. This is an artificial mountain is what it is because the gods live in mountains. So you want to build them something like that they have. So hopefully they'll come and live there. Okay, that's kind of the idea. But the goal is I'm creating a space where I can summon the deity. This is the ancient mindset. And then I can come and I can make deals with them to get him to do what I want, okay? Do you see what's wrong here with humanity saying, hey, God, I'm going to make a space where I summon you, and then we make deals so you do what I want. Yeah, you kind of get the idea here. God's going, no, that's not how this works at all. You don't summon me. I don't come at your beck and call. You are are intentionally saying, we're going to, my relationship with you, God, it's going to be on my terms, That's the idea here. And so um, this is sort of the, I would suggest, the uh, Tower of Babel story. It's kind of the Romans chapter 1 passage. Do you you know the Romans chapter 1 passage where Paul's talking about how how messed up the human heart is? And and then he says, so God turned them over to their passions and their lusts. 
right? It's the idea of like, this is really what you want? Go for it. Let's see how that works out for you. That's what God does here as a result of Babel, as a result of the third time of saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do my kingdom. And they say, no, 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 it's our kingdom. The name I'm going to set up, it's my name. So he goes, okay, fine. And so he divorces the nations. He says, you don't want me as your God? Okay, I'll give you that. I will turn you over to what you want. And again, let's see how that works out. And so when we, when we go to, this is Genesis chapter 11, you go back one chapter in your Bibles, oftentimes um, editors will, will uh, label it the table of nations. By the way, on your bulletin on the inside, you've got some helpful vocabulary. Some of the words that I'll be using are in there, if it's helpful to kind of make some notes next to it or whatever. The table of nations is a list of all of the nations in the ancient world that the uh, ancient Israelites were aware of, okay? All the ones, and so we've got them listed here. And these are all of the descendants of Noah and their sons, and they make up all the nations. Guess what nation is not listed in the, na- in the table of nations? Israel. Why? It hasn't been created yet. <laughs> Abraham's not even alive, Okay. But these, Genesis 10, it's the, it's the list of the table of nations. And then Genesis 11 explains, well, how did they get to be all separate? Oh, here's how. Because they, they still wouldn't be obedient to the command. That's why, and so he, he, he divorces them. Um, and uh, now you might think, well, wait a minute, there's, there's nothing supernatural here, Brent. We read the story, it's humanity rebelling, but there's no real supernatural element to it. That's because we don't have all the original context for it, but Deuteronomy 32 provides it for us. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is Moses writing back commentary about what happened, okay? Listen to what he says here, Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind and fixed the borders of the people. When was that? That's Babel. That's what we just read about, right? So he's, he's talking about Genesis 11. He says, when that happened, listen to this, he divided them up. How? I wonder how he divided up. According to the number of the sons of God. And again, we got introduced to them last week. So this, this is part of God's divine counsel. They're on his payroll. They're working for him, okay? And he is he, essentially what he says to the nations, you don't want me, fine. I'm, again, I'm divorcing you. The, the language that's used is I'm disinheriting you, okay? And I'm going to put placeholders. I'm going to assign other Elohim who have a higher status role. They're a son of God, okay? That's, that's their job description status. And I'm going to put them over the nations. And the language of allotment is used, so the, the, these lesser Elohim, the, these gods, are allotted to the people, and the people are allotted to them. The language is used back and forth. They're assigned to them. And then, of course, as he says here, but the Lord's portion, meaning his inheritance, is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Jacob is just another synonym for Israel. The names are used interchangeably. So he's saying, all the other nations... I gave them away. They are no longer my people. In fact, they are being uh, ruled, administrated by 
other sons of God, these lesser Elohim. But what I'm going to do, so he divorces all of the nations. And this, this is a punishment. This is a punishment on, and here's a phrase that's used again and again, it's going to keep coming back up, the nations. The, the nations means everyone else except God's people. <laughs> the nations have been divorced. This is a punishment upon them. Is he done for them for, forever? Is he just saying, I'll, I never want anything to do with you again? <laughs> no, because Genesis chapter, the very next chapter, when he um, calls Abram, or Abraham as we know him, he says, um, I want you to leave your... He goes over to Mesopotamia, to Ur, and this is another God's people, but he says, I'll, I'll just take the guy who can't have any kids. I'll take him, right? The guy who gets picked last. You know, Sarah and Abram, they can't have kids, so they're perfect. And, and God's going to supernaturally create a new people with him. And when he calls Abraham, he, he says this, uh, leave your, your family, your nation, your land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. Oh, that sounds, remember, the people of Babylon wanted to make their name great on their own. I'll make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. Now listen to this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen to this part. In you, all of the what? The families of, that's the nations. All of the families of earth, they're going to get the blessing. They're going to get a blessing. So he's not done with the nations forever. But how is he going to do it? What's he going to do? Who knows? <laughs> it's pretty vague. He judges them a lot. They're corrupt. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty bad. But he's not done. He still loves people. He wants them ruled and taken care of well. He wants them ruled with wisdom. That's why he assigned to them some of his best people, <laughs> the sons of God. Okay? He assigns them some of his divine counsel to shepherd them, to take care of them, to rule them well. Well, what we see is, um, problem is, uh, Israel doesn't do a great job following. They're constantly tempted to pursue after the gods, these other Elohim, of the other nations. And something goes wrong. We'll look at what exactly goes wrong here. But, but listen to this language. This is the same book, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, the author's saying, man, Israel really needs to like, get their stuff together. Otherwise, God's going to judge them. And then, and then everyone's going to be like, man, why did God judge his own people? Like, Why did he let them uh, be ransacked and that sort of thing? All the nations will say, why has Yahweh done this to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? Then people will say, well, it's because they abandoned the covenant with Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other Elohim, other gods, and worshiped them. Now listen to this, this key phrase. Gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Meaning these were Elohim, gods that were allotted to other nations, but not to Israel. Um, he also, read this one, it's good. And the language is important here. Notice the allotment language. Get that in your mind. That's key. Inheritance uh, allotment. And beware lest you raise your eyes. This is Moses saying, hey, just worship our Elohim, Yahweh, not these other ones. Beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that Yahweh, your Elohim, has allotted to, 
of the nations, those other people. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be his allotment, his inheritance, as you are to this day. And again, they don't do a great job at that. In fact, we here's uh, one pass. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, th- 32. That's not it. Well, I'll, I'll just have to read it. I thought I had it up here. Um, we read that uh, Israel went and, and worshipped and served other um, gods. The word that's used is shadim in the Hebrew, which a shade is like a territorial entity, a spiritual entity that guards its area. And we're told that Israel went and served them and sacrificed to them. So we see Israel constantly being uh, wooed by these other Elohim, by these other gods in different ways. Um, Psalm 82, let me, let me jump to that. We, we mentioned this week one when we established this idea that God has a divine counsel that he uses for administration. And we read this in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now remember, he established, he set over the nations, these sons of God, right? And they were good. They were on his payroll. They're working for him. At some point, they became corrupt. We're not told when, but at some point, they became corrupt because this is them, and this is what Yahweh is saying to them. How long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. But because you haven't done that, this is the the condition they're in. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. That's the idea that just like chaos. Things are falling apart in the nations. And then Yahweh addresses them. He says this, I said you are gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High. We know who the Most High is, right? That's, that's him. You're sons of the, of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalmist at the very end, and this, this is key, this is what's going to sort of make sense for where we're going here. He says this to God in a prayer. The psalmist says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, and then look at this. You shall inherit the nations. He's saying, take them back, God. (laughs) Take the nations back because they're being abused. They're, they're, They're being taken advantage of, exploited, by the rebellious sons of God who are now hostile, not just to your people Israel, not just to you, they're hostile to the nations. The nations are being absolutely destroyed because the gods have become corrupt. So if you ask the question, oftentimes, you know, our questions come into our mind like, so what were the, what were the gods supposed to do? Well, just read the reverse of Psalm 82. <laughs> All the things they didn't do, that's what they were supposed to do with the nations, and again, be sort of placeholders during this time. Um, Let me give you a couple examples. This introduces something, this this whole concept here, 
there's a phrase, and this is in your bulletin, there's, there's an idea called cosmic geography. Um, if you don't see this, you're just going to miss a lot of things in the Bible as you read through it. Cosmic geography is the notion that there are these geographical areas which were given over to these supernatural rulers who are now corrupt. And this, this is just, again, this is so foreign to us. Like, like, we don't think like this. The ancient Israelite, not just the ancient Israelite, all the ancient people had this concept of cosmic geography. Let me, um, <clears throat> let me read for you, just kind of as, as an example, um, a couple of these passages that I think do a, a good job. Let me get to uh, 2 Kings 5. Okay, um, you've, if, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard this story. Naaman, uh, he's a commander of the, one of the armies in Syria, and um, he's wealthy and everything's great except he has leprosy. And so, you know, he's one day complaining about the leprosy he has. In one of the raids that, that the Syrians did down to Israel, they captured a little Israelite servant girl. And she hears him complaining about the fact that he has leprosy. And so she says through the uh, woman of the house, well, just tell him to go down to Israel. There's a prophet there named uh, Elisha, and he'll heal you. And so he takes, he, he takes money. He, you know, this is like his last, last ditch effort. He takes money, takes his, his men, uh, his uh, horses, and goes down to Israel and first connects with the king and all these sorts of things. But anyway, goes to Elisha's house and gives the message, and Elisha doesn't even come out to see him. He just sends a messenger. Ah, tell him to go dip into the Jordan seven times. And Naaman's kind of perturbed, because he's like, yeah, but do you know who I am? You don't even come out to, like, to see me? And the Jordan is like a I mean, tiny little worthless river. We've got a lot better rivers where I live. I'm not going to do that. So we, in, a, in a huff, he turns around just to leave. And as men say, if he asked you to do some great thing, you'd do it. Why not just, do, just, just try it? And so Naaman goes, all right, I'll try. So he goes down, dips in the Jordan, comes up the seventh time, and his skin is completely clean. He doesn't have leprosy, and he just can't believe it. So he goes back to the house to see Elisha, and this time Elisha comes out and talks to him. And he says, it, it worked, it worked. And he said, um, now I know, in fact, let me, let me read you this passage here. Goes and dips. Um, can't find that passage here. Uh, dips. He makes the comment where he says, now I know Yahweh is the God of gods. Basically, I realized that the God he worshipped is named Ramon back in Assyria. And he realized, like, Ramon's not that deal. <laughs> Yahweh is the most high God, and, and I will only serve him from here on out. And then he says to Elisha, he says, I brought all this money, I want to pay you for this. And Elisha goes, nope. <laughs> I'm not, you can't think that, like, you got off by paying me. Like, your life is owed to God kind of thing. So he refuses, you know, the money. I'm not going to take anything from you. And he tries to go, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And that's usually the story that we know and then we read about, you know, things happen. There's one part that we oftentimes skip over because we don't get it, because we don't understand cosmic geography. What he asks afterwards is he says, um, then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of dirt of earth. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god but Yahweh. Why does he ask for dirt? I want as much dirt. Like, do they, are, are they in a shortage of dirt in Assyria, do you think? No. 
It's sacred geography. It's cosmic geography. This is Yahweh's land. I want to take, and we're not told what he's going to do with it. Is he going to keep some on him? Is he going to go into his house and lay some of it down? But then he makes a statement. He says, um, hey, here's, here's the problem. I, I work for the king. And the king has to go into the temple of Ramon, and I have to kind of hold his arm, and the king bows down to Ramon. And so when he bows, I'm kind of bowing down and all this sort of thing. He said, will Yahweh know that when I bow, I'm not bowing to Ramon. I'm bowing to Yahweh, and I've got some of his dirt with me. I've got some of his land, and so I'm faithful to Yahweh. And Elisha goes, yeah, shalom. Yeah, peace. That's good. You're good to go. God's okay with that. But think about this. Actual, cause, actual geography matters to the ancient mind because it's been allotted to different beings. It's been put, they've been put in charge of those areas. One other one here that's a, kind of a, a, a fun one we know about this. Uh, this is your, your second Samuel, I think. Um, second, second Samuel 5. We know this story oftentimes too. Remember when the Philistines come and capture the ark and they bring it back to Philistine territory um, and they bring it into, David defeats it, they bring it into the, uh, um, the altar of Dagon, their god. And remember it says they set, they set the ark up before this, this um, idol of the god Dagon and they wake up the next morning, and they come in, and remember what happened? It says, the idol of Dagon is laying prostrate before the ark. And they kind of, ah, this isn't good. So they set you know, the uh, idol back up, and it says, the next morning when they woke up, they came in, and he was prostrating it, but this time his head and his arms had fallen off. I mean, just broken, you know, broken, broken. And that's when they go, get rid of this ark thing. And so they take the ark, and they like just you know, send it back on a, on a cart, um, hoping that it'll get back there. But what's, what's interesting is what's said in um, this passage is, um, oh, I hit one, that's what's the problem. What's said in this first uh, Samuel 5, we're told, here we go, um, the, the body of Dagon was laying on the threshold of the, of the temple. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And, it says, and then the comment, here's the comment. This is why priests of Dagon... And all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod, even to this day. Why wouldn't they do that? Because that area is no longer Dagon's, it's Yahweh's. I don't want something could happen to me. If I step on this area that Yahweh has reclaimed, something bad could happen to me. So when they came in, I mean, they'd like step around the threshold every time they entered because that piece of cosmic geography no longer belonged to Dagon. This was Yahweh's geography, and you're realizing he's not just like one of the other Elohim, right? Well, of course, we know he's the most high. He is the most high God. Uh, this makes sense of things like uh, Daniel chapter 10. Uh, most Christians are more familiar with this, but we oftentimes wonder, like, where did Daniel get his theology from? Is he just making this stuff up? Because when he's talking, he, he prays, and this supernatural being comes to him and says, Daniel, from the very first time you started to pray, I was coming, but I was held up by the prince of Persia and mentions the prince of Greece. And these aren't king human princes. These are supernatural beings that are somehow assigned to this geography, or at least claim ownership, I should say. 
of a geography. And you might wonder, like, where, where does Daniel get this idea? He gets it from Deuteronomy 32. When God divided up the nations, he assigned them according to the number of the sons of God. Daniel's very aware of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this, this worldview, we have to realize, um, this was shared by, by virtually every ancient culture. They had this idea. In fact, you know, when, when Paul, later in the Gospels, or after the Gospels, when he goes and is evangelizing, he has a shared worldview with most of the pagans in terms of, yeah, there's the Most High God, and they're responsible, yeah, the reason we worship our gods is because that's the way the Most High wanted it. That's, that's what they're thinking. So that's why, like, Paul in places like Acts chapter 17, um, <clears throat> verse, um, verse 26, this is what Paul says to the Areopagus. This is the uh, ruling body of the city-state of Athens. These are pagan Greek philosophers. And he says this, he made one man, sorry, from one man, he made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having, listen, determined what? Remember that key word there? I said, don't forget. God allotted out all the nations. He's talking about Genesis 11, right? And they know this. This is part of their worldview as well. Of mankind having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God. His original plan was he did it, allotted them so that they would somehow come back to God. Of course, it goes bad because the gods become corrupt. That they would seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, even though he's not far from each one of us. If you read Plato, you'll, you'll hear in Plato him say things like, well, yeah, the reasons the different nations worship the gods is because that's how the Most High God wanted it. That was the kind of universal worldview in the ancient, this, the Most High God. He set things up like this. Now, they've misinterpreted that. He set it up, but they became corrupt. Uh, they weren't supposed to worship these other gods, um, but the other gods solicited their worship. So it's, a broke, it, it's set up by him, but it's a broken system because they rebelled. It's really messed up and really broken. And we see... Um, Paul, when he thinks about, and again, I mentioned this whole concept of this is the explanation of spiritual warfare. <clears throat> Listen to the language that, that Paul uses here. Remember the, the put on the full armor of God um, command? He says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So this is something non-physical, something in the unseen realm. What do we wrestle with? Rulers. These are Every single one of these words except the word power is a geographical entity. Rulers against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the unseen realm, in heavenly places. Paul is very clued in on this. Uh, we also see, I'll give you some kind of other examples here. Speaking of Jesus, he said he's the image of the invisible God. Remember, he's an Elohim, but he's unique because he is the physical expression of Yahweh. The firstborn of all creation, that is the first one resurrected. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven, in the unseen realm, things on earth, things that are visible in this realm, terrestrial realm, and invisible, whether they be, look, it's more geographical, 
titles, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of those things, he says, Jesus created them. He set them up. Now, they've gone wrong. They're broken. They're wreaking havoc. But Jesus is the one who created them. Why is that important to know? Because anyone who comes up against Jesus doesn't have that same power, doesn't have that same ability. These aren't all equal players here. This isn't a yin and a yang, and Jesus is kind of the white side, and the evil powers are, are the dark side, and they're these equal powers. No, 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 no. It's completely different. Than that. This is the creator of the universe, we're told. Um, Paul says this, Paul connects the resurrection of Jesus with the defeat of the powers. Um, he writes this, when he raised him, when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, listen to this, he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above, and he, here's the stock language again, rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named. In about a half dozen places, almost every single time Paul mentions the resurrection, he, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the only place where he talks about, okay, so what are our bodies going to be like, right? Like, that's what I think of immediately. Like, let's see, you know, I, resurrection, oh, I won't have to wear my glasses, I'll be perfect health, you know, you know. We think about those. Paul doesn't go there. Half a dozen times, anytime Paul mentions the resurrection, he immediately goes to the powers, authorities, and rulers. He's like, yeah, they're, 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 they're delegitimized. Their, their authority has been taken away from them. Where did he get that from? Well, his master. Um, Matthew chapter 28, this is the Great Commission. You, you've probably heard this passage. Listen, this. all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? Uh, the nations. <laughs> Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Maybe the most important statement in there are the first few words. That, that we just tend to read over and we don't think about it. What does it say right at the beginning? All authority in the unseen realm and this realm, I got. <laughs> because of that... Go do evangelism and discipleship, right? That's the basis for him saying, we're reclaiming the nations. Remember Psalm 82? Oh God, rise up, reclaim the nations. Jesus is saying, yeah, that's what I'm about. That's what I'm here for. And we even see him um, telegraphing it before we fully know what's going on. Do you, do you remember the passage in uh, John chapter 10 where it says he, he assigned 72 and he sent them out, disciples, do you remember that? And then the 72 come back just a few verses later and they go, man, even, uh, even the spiritual beings who were possessing people listened, right? Why does he pick 72? Every one of that's a weird number. It's not like one of these. Why would you pick 72? two disciples to send out. Remember, remember the table of nations? If you were to go through and count, guess how many there are? 72. <laughs> Do you see what he's telegraphing? If the people don't know it there, the authorities, powers, I promise you they do. He's sending out 72, that's ours. He's saying, I'm going after the nations. I want them back. You think you're going to be in trouble if you defy your gods? No. They've been delegitimized. 
I have all authority, all power, and so I want them back. That's why missions is so key. We're doing what was always the plan, and God is now bringing back the nations. <clears throat> this, is, this, this explains Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the resurrection, the ascension is happening. He says, I'm going to send my spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, this is what we read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. This is stock Old Testament description for, for the presence of God, whether it be on Mount Sinai or other places. <clears throat> it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, there's a couple of key things happening here. Um, divided tongues, that there's something key that the first century reader would think about right away. Um, as a fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit they began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <clears throat> now, listen to this. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout Jews from where? They're from all the... Wait, how are they from the nations? They're Jews. Well, you go back to the Old Testament when, when Israel was unfaithful. Remember, God allowed foreign nations to come in and just obliterate them, many of them, but then to take a lot of them. And the, Assyri the uh, Assyrian kingdom, what they did was they took people and they just scattered them. Like, I'm going to throw some Jews there and some Jews there, and I'm going to you know, throw some Parthians there. So the Jews are scattered all over, and this is a judgment on Israel, Right? All of these Jews from the scattered nations, as a, that was a result of judgment, are here at this moment. They hear the message, they believe in the Messiah, and then guess what they do? They go home. And now God has cell groups planted all throughout the nations. <laughs> what was originally a judgment, God uses to now be the solution to Him regaining the nations. And what's so interesting, too, there are two words in here. Um, do you see this word right here, divided? Uh, and then this word, bewildered. Um, Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but centuries before Jesus comes along, they've translated into Greek because most people are speaking Greek. In fact, 75% of the time that New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, guess what they're quoting from? The Greek version. <laughs> It's called the Septuagint. So that's, that's what they're quoting from Luke. Luke's very careful. When he writes this, these two words right here, divided tongues and they were bewildered. If you did a search for those two words in the Greek, guess where they show up? Divided, that exact word, shows up in Deuteronomy 32 when God divided up the nations. And then this word right here, bewildered, is the word that's used when it says God came down and... and, um, and made them not understand each other, they were bewildered. Luke is intentionally picking a word from Deuteronomy 32 and a word from Genesis 11, the, the Babel event and the explanation of it, and he puts it in here. Why does he do that? Here, here, here's what the Hebrew expected. When the Messiah comes, he doesn't just have to fix Genesis 3. He's got to fix Genesis 6, and he's got to fix Genesis 11. When the Messiah comes, he has to address all three. It's not, it's not just the one thing. That's why if we don't see these other rebellions, we don't see things Jesus is doing. The nations have been fragmented. They've been disinherited. 
Jesus' coming, the Messiah's coming, has to repair that. That's the start of it. And so that's why when you go all throughout the, the rest of the book of Acts, for instance, um, what you see happening... Actually, let me go back to this one here. This is a picture of the known world at the time in the ancient world. And this would have been where all of the table of nations would have resided. They would have been in these various places. When you start reading the book of Acts after Pentecost, remember it says they start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That, that's their land. Right? That's, that's what uh, Solomon owned. That's theirs. But then it says, and, that, and then Paul gets called. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He's, his goal is the nations. And as you start reading the chapters in the book of Acts, it starts on the far right side, and then it makes its way over, it hits the Mediterranean, and goes north and goes south. And every nation that's listed in Acts chapter 2, remember it says like they're all Jews from the different nations, and it lists a bunch of them, those were all captured in the table of nations in Genesis 10. That's all of them. Remember when he goes to Ethiopia, and why does he do that? Well, because some Jews had gone down to Ethiopia. And then here's what we see Paul doing. Paul seems to be, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, Paul has this like obsession with getting to Spain. If you've read the book of Romans, um, in fact, you know, he says this, he says, man, you know, for this reason, I'm coming to see you, I really want to see you. And he says, I hope I can see you in passing on my way to Spain. And Paul never got there. Why does Paul have this obsession with getting to Spain? Well, if you go back to the table of nations, the very furthest out nation that's listed, Tarshish. Guess what Tarshish is? Spain. I thoroughly believe that Paul thought, once I get there, Jesus is returning. We're done. I think he thought it was short because he thought, once I get to all the table of nations, it's done. God's, the day of judgment is coming. God's people will be brought in. The fullness of the Gentiles, as it said, will be brought in. And of course, <clears throat> Paul didn't realize the world was much bigger than it is, right? We have that exact same call to go to the nations. And that's the call that we have even in our own lives from our Messiah. <clears throat> let, let me mention one last thing that I, that I really like, um, and then we'll, uh, we're going to transition to a time of communion here. There, there's a passage, I, I mentioned to you that um, the Old Testament Bible was translated into uh, Greek, the Septuagint, that's, like I said, the majority of the, of the New Testament authors used that, they just would have been more familiar with it. If you go to, uh, Septuagint has different numbering, they combine two psalms, so it's our psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 82 in the Septuagint, it's Psalm 81. So, you know the end where it says, Stand up, O God, or rise up, judge the earth, because you will inherit the nations. You know, it's so cool. Anastasis is, uh, well, the word he uses here, anastami, is the verb form of the noun resurrection. Anastasis. So when the New Testament writers are, are reading back what they see is resurrect, O God, and bring back the nations. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's like they're seeing these pieces of, 
that's what was going on. That's what we, we couldn't see it then, but now seeing it, that the resurrection, it is the key to the reclaiming of the nations. The third human and divine rebellion, Jesus had in mind. Jesus had it as a, as a radar fix. Paul had it in mind. Paul had it as his sole goal. His, his self-identification was, I am the apostle to the nations. I'm reclaiming the nations. We need to end because I've, I've, I've gone too long. We want to do a time of communion, though. Um, during this next song, I would invite you to go to the tables, grab an element, and then on your own and in your own time, in your own way, uh, take those elements, the bread, Christ's body, broken for us, the, the cup, his blood, shed. And I would love for you to just reflect on all of this reality that we've been talking about as you take this, that this, this is a tangible symbol of his commitment to reclaiming the nations, of his commitment to fixing this third great rebellion. He would go to any lengths to do it. That's how much he loves us. And we, as uh, Romans says, we who were not his people, because we were not, I'm not Jewish, we who were not his people, he says, I'll call you my people. I want you. I want you in. So go to the tables, grab this. When you've taken it, stand and let's sing this song out. Let me read for you uh, a passage where Paul in Romans chapter 9 He quotes Hosea, the prophet, speaking about God's plan to repair things. And he says, those who were not my people, the nations, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, I'm I'm divorcing you, I'm disinheriting, they will be called sons of the living God. And that's what we are. So my prayer for you is that you would go this week in that confidence and knowing that you are a son or a daughter of the living most high God. Amen? Amen. Love being with you guys. Have a great week. See you next Wednesday.